0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Before I jump into that good news, I want to talk a little bit about, just introduce myself to you. Uh, like I said, my name is James. I have my wife, Amy. Amy. Uh, we're covenant members of Connection Church. Uh, we have a son, Henry. He's about two months old. You heard him attempting to sing along earlier this morning over there or just wanting more food. Uh, I'm currently on staff with Connection Church. I serve as a, a resident here. That means under the leadership and care and um, kind of equipping of the pastors here, I'm discerning what God's next steps are for uh, myself and my wife as, as we look toward ministry. And we're being equipped and formed to serve uh, God in that way. Um, and Jonathan, our lead pastor has been extremely instrumental in that process. Uh, he has poured into, into my life and our life in many ways. And, and he's brought areas that are, are, blind spots, sin that I didn't know was present in my life to the, to the forefront and helped me uh, pull that out and, and give that over to Jesus and confess that and repent of that. I've been deeply shaped by that investment Uh, Not only on a personal level, though, Jonathan stands up here just about every Sunday and faithfully preaches the word of God and points us to Jesus. And so I've not only been transformed and nourished by that, but it's also caused us uh, to love Jesus more. And so um, that's what I get to kind of do this morning as well, kind of follow in that and, and give you the word of God. And hopefully by the end of this, this morning, you will love Jesus more. Our practice in the summer uh, to take a break from whatever series we're going through. And that's Ben Matthew. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you've, you've had a lot of Matthew. We're taking a break and we're moving into the Psalms. That's that's what we do during the summer. <clears throat> the Psalms they are made up of prayers, songs, and hymns sung by the people of God in the Old Testament. It's, it's basically the hymnal of the Old Testament. Uh, But it has a significant influence on the songs that we sing. You you see up here on a Sunday morning, we have the lyrics of our songs. And often at the bottom, there's a a passage where those lyrics are drawn from. And that's typically often the psalms. Some of them are identical. We're just singing psalms. um, Recognizing that songs, whatever music you listen, listen to, they have a profound impact on us. Nothing is quite as catchy as a jingle right? Our aim is to be shaped by the songs of God's people rather than being molded and influenced exclusively by commercial jingles or whatever other music that you listen to. Um, These collected works, these psalms, there's 150 of them in here, are the, the heartfelt outpourings of people seeking God. They encompass songs of praise and worship, They encompass pain and lamenting, justice and questioning, confession, repentance, and so much more. But if you're anything like me, you might find the Psalms strange, mysterious, and pretty challenging to grasp. I lean toward analytical thinking. I'm an engineer uh, and and like things very straightforward, bullet points. Give, Give me bullet points. That's what I roll with. Um, I often then struggle with poetry or anything that's kind of related to art. Uh, you can ask my wife more about that if you want. Uh, I, while others on say like a road trip or just as you're working in your cubicle will indulge in listening to music, uh, I typically am listening to podcasts on race car breaks or the Bronze Age Collapse or something like that. That's, that's where my mind and my heart go. Uh, and I spend more time studying maps than Monet. Or other painters, right? That's just that's what I like. Give me a map of Sioux Falls, and I'll stand forever in front of that thing. Um, so that means when I read the Bible, when I'm digging into the Word of God, often often people get stuck in Chronicles and Levit- Leviticus. I don't. I get stuck in the Psalms. Like it's just so many songs. so much poetry in a row, and I don't know how to handle that. That's too much for me. Um, but let me share something with you. Over the past few years, specifically through last summer as we dug through the Psalms, God has remarkably opened my heart and mine to the Psalms. He has revealed to me the profound depths and wisdom and beauty contained within these Psalms. They have provided me with words to express emotions that, that seemed inexpressible. As you can imagine, if I listen to Break Card podcast, I'm not very good with emotions either. And so the Psalms have, have given me words and ways to express what's going on in my heart. They brought me hope during challenging times and, and taught me to, that it is okay to pour out my feelings to God, to scream in frustration and desire. And that is often when we are reminded of God's immense love for us in those moments. So perhaps you can relate to my struggle with the Psalms, and I invite you then To join me this summer as we cruise through the Psalms, as we lean in to the transformative lessons that God has in store for us, let's discover the invaluable teachings that will be declared to us from men this summer. This morning, we're in Psalm 14. It isn't very long, uh, and we'll cover the whole thing this morning. There's much good news in this Psalm. It was written by David, who was a king of Israel, and he loved God. We're not entirely sure of when he wrote it, though. Some scholars think it might have been written while he was on the run. His, his son Absalom kind of led a coup, disposed of him from his throne, ran him out of the capital city. And in that journey of kind of reinstating his empire or his kingdom from that coup, David wrote a lot of songs. He wrote a lot of psalms. And often scholars think this is one of them. Another thing to note is that Psalm 53 is almost identical to Psalm 14. There's like one stanza in verse 6 that's, that's different. But everything else about it is, is identical. It is a psalm that expresses distress at the evil in the world, but acknowledging God's future salvation. So let's go ahead and read this psalm. If you have a Bible or a device that will get you there, go ahead and open that. If you don't, there should be a blue paperbook Bible in the tray of the chair in front of you. Consider that our gift to you. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, don't be afraid of the table of contents in the front. Uh, but a helpful trick for the Psalms is just open to the middle. It's especially if you're in that blue paperback. If you just open it to the middle, you're in Psalms. And then all you have to do is find Psalm 14, which is the big, bold black letters, and the verses would be the smaller letters. So here's Psalm 14, says to the choir master of David. That's how we know David wrote it. It says, uh, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? They are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, That salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortune of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. As we dissect this psalm, it will become clear that in defiant rebellion, we turned away from God experiencing the repercussions and just punishment. But Jesus emerges as the ultimate hero, restoring our relationship with God, bringing hope, redemption, and renewal. And we'll get get there through three sections of this psalm. In verses one through three, we see that in a resolute act of defiance, each and every one of us With unwavering determination, has chosen to turn away from God, plunging our hearts and lives into rebellion that echoes through our very being. And in the next section, verses four through six, we see how our misplaced worship has ramifications. We become ensnared in rebellion. When we are entangled in rebellion's aftermath, our choices lead to brokenness, evil, and the consequences of our evil. But finally, in verse 7, what we'll, what we'll uncover is that amidst the chaos and despair, a profound story unfolds. Jesus emerges as the ultimate hero, stepping into history to restore our shattered relationship with God, bringing hope, redemption, and renewal. Together, these will show us that while we worship anything but God, Jesus rescues us and restores our relationship with the Father. I'm going to pause here and just give you a fair warning. Um, I grew up in southwest Oklahoma. So if if I say the word worship really weird, that's one of those words that has just stuck with me and I can't shake it. So I apologize ahead of time for that. If you want a list of those words, you can ask my wife. But that's the main one. Uh, So just realize that may sound funny to your ears this morning. I'm I'm really trying to practice the last two weeks. Uh, Let's take a look at verses 1 through 3. We're confronted with humanity's universal defiance. We defiantly turn away from God, plunging our hearts into rebellion. How do we get there? Well, let's look at verses 1 through 3 here. It introduces us to this this character, this person called the fool. And that's, that's an example of someone who willfully rejects God. For us, the descriptor fool may not carry a lot of weight. It it may just be what you call every other driver on the road except yourself. Um, But in the Old Testament, for the reader of this psalm, fool is is a major thing to call someone. It implies a fully and completely wicked person. Someone who has rejected God and ethics and morals and anything that is good. But here's what verses 2 and 3 do. They expand the scope of the single fool to all of humanity. And it highlights that the fool then represents all of humanity who have willfully rejected God. The repetition of there is no one who does good emphasizes the universal nature of that rejection. And then at the very end of verse 3, it says, not even one. So if you get this picture in your mind. of of David looking at the world and saying, man, here's this guy, and he's rejected everything about God. I wonder if everyone's like that. And then he zooms back. That's, That's the language of God looks from heaven, right? You see everything, and he's like, wow, that applies to every single person that exists. So there is no one who does good, not even one. Here's the Another really cool thing about Psalm 14, uh, the best commentary on Psalm 14 is written by the apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans, which he wrote to encourage and instruct the church in Rome about the faithfulness of God. Romans chapter three, verses nine through 12, Paul cites and, and kind of paraphrases these verses. Uh, so if you have that Bible with you, let's go ahead and flip there. It'll probably be on the screen behind you as well, potentially, um, Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 12 says this What then are we Jews any better off No not at all for we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written no one is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for God all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good, not even one. Now, I nerded out, circling words and phrases and drawing lines between those passages in my prep for this. This is I translate things from like numbers and flowcharts into into English, so that then I can speak. Um, I won't subject you to all that scribble this morning. I don't have a slide with all my scribble on it. Uh, But to summarize all of that, Paul is using this text along with others to make a point about the human condition. Uh, This is a common practice among rabbis, Jewish teachers of that day, and they would mash together texts uh, and show how they arrived at a conclusion. So what is Paul doing? What is his conclusion? Well, we find that all the way down in Romans chapter 3, verses 23, for all have sinned, And fallen short of the glory of God. Paul has restated there is no one who does good to say that we are all separated from God. Paul is also using these verses to summarize and reinforce the argument that he has been building. He's coming from someplace as well. In in chapters one and two of Romans, Paul outlines humanity's rebellion against God. In Romans chapter 1, we read about humanity's total willful rejection of God to worship other things, to worship the created instead of the creation. And in Romans 2, we are confronted with the reliance on religious practice and religious heritage instead of worshiping God. See, Paul is showing his readers how this passage declares that we have all rejected God. It doesn't matter if this is your first time ever in a, in a building meeting with a church or if you were born literally in a, a building where a church met, right? We have all rejected God willfully and doggedly, replacing our worship of him with the worship of absolutely anything else. See, we look for the answer to our deepest fears and longings in anything but Jesus, this is what Romans 1 and 2 and the first part of Psalm 14 are laying out for us. See, when we talk about the word worship, it involves serving and seeking fulfillment in the various areas of our lives. For instance, if you're like me, our careers often become the primary focus of our worship, where we seek meaning and purpose. We, I, are looking for our careers to give us the good life, to answer for us the questions of who we are. Do we have value? Am I acceptable? We look for our career to give us comfort and pleasure, social status, and to make us impressive to our friends, and to bring us forms of power and influence. When our career becomes the primary focus of our worship, we begin to serve it and sacrifice for it. It functionally becomes the most important thing in our life. It is the last thing we can do without. We offer it our utmost dedication, pouring our best efforts and energy into it, granting it priority over our time and commitments. We willingly yield to its demands for additional hours and sacrifice, reshaping our plans, rearranging commitments, and even allowing it to to dictate the time that we spend with friends and family. Friends, this is worship. That's like the literal definition. For you, it may be something other than career. It could be family, a significant other, power, anything else. Whatever it is, I can absolutely say with complete conviction and without hesitation, it will be completely in vain. You and I will never be satisfied by those things. We were designed to never be satisfied by anything except Jesus And this is our rebellion. When the psalmist says, none do what is good, he is referring to our worship of anything other than God. And this is the essence of our sin. You see, sin is primarily a disposition, not an action. Romans 1 lines this out for us. It tells us that we are given over to actions because of disposition, because of our misplaced worship. The word misplaced there might mislead us, but our worship is not accidentally mislaid like the car keys in the couch cushion. Our worship is purposely placed on something unfitting for it. And that has ramifications. We become ensnared, entangled in our rebellion. When we are entangled in rebellions, Aftermath, our choices lead to brokenness, evil, and just consequences, and that's what the psalmist describes in the next three verses. Verses four through six of Psalm fourteen say, "Have they no knowledge? All the evil doers who eat up my people as they eat up bread, and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge." See, in these these stanzas, the psalmist is looking around and he's seeing the evil and injustice in the world and voicing condemnation towards those who are abusing the weak. In verse 4, they're described as those who eat up my people. And in verse 6, as shaming the plans of the poor. But the key really here, the key to remember here is that Though this psalm is talking a lot of theys and thems and those people, it's actually us. It's talking about me and you. You see, our rejection of God, our worship of other things in place of Him, results in broken a broken, unjust and evil world. We are given over the ramifications of our misplaced worship. In other words, we, what we worship becomes who we are and dictates how we behave. Here's an imperfect analogy. I went to school at a nerd school, South Dakota School of Mines and Engineering, and I went to study engineering. My last biology class was sophomore year of high school, and in that biology class, there was a section On anatomy, and I don't remember a single thing from it. Way too many Latin words. Now, here's what I can do I can go buy a whole bunch of scrubs. I can watch some TV shows, knock down a lot of Grey's Anatomy. I can learn lingo. I can even get on like Photoshop or something and print out a diploma, and I can call myself a doctor. I could learn to talk like a doctor, just hang out with Charlie for a while, right? Mimic the actions of a doctor, dress like a doctor, and fake the credentials of a doctor. But none of that changes that you don't want me doing your liver transplant. Though I guess if a human liver kind of looks like a cow liver, I might be able to figure out where it's at. What I mean is is that no matter how much I try to be a doctor. I can't because that is not what I have devoted my life to. The things we are devoted to change us, mold us, and give us over to the actions that we do. My engineering ability flows out of what I have devoted myself to. I can't perform a liver transplant because there is nothing for that action to flow from. No devotion to anything remotely resembling that. And this is true about the things that we worship. If I worship my career, no amount of good advice and attempted behavior modification will change the fact that my life is completely consumed by my career. No amount of checklist and commitment to Christian disciplines will keep me from sacrificing my health, my commitment to you, the church body, my kids, my marriage, my relationship with Jesus, because my career demands me sacrifice those things. And I am intoxicated by the false promises that my career gives me. What we worship in place of Jesus will destroy us and those around us. And behavior modification isn't the answer. More theological knowledge isn't the answer. That's that's my pill, right? None of that will actually change the condition of our hearts. None of that will change the fact that we don't do what is good because we worship the wrong things. Jesus doesn't want us to modify our behavior, to be worshipers of false gods who are moral and kind of look like people who worship him. Jesus doesn't want us to simply modify our behavior. He wants to make us alive and give us hearts capable of worshiping him. We must be set free from our misplaced worship and be made capable of worshiping something that will satisfy. And that is the good news of Jesus. You see, amidst the brokenness, good news unfolds. Jesus enters the story as the ultimate hero, stepping into history to restore our shattered relationship with God, bringing hope, redemption, and renewal. And this is what we find the psalmist crying out for. Look at that final verse in verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortune of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. The psalmist is looking forward to to a time of salvation and restoration. That's the, that's the call of the, of the prophets in the Old Testament. Zion is, is the place of hope. Come, come bring your salvation. A time when God fulfills all of his promises to his people, where peace and joy are unbroken. And friends, we have a different vantage point. We are in the middle of the story And what we describe as the kind of the already, but not yet, right? Even though we are still living in a broken world, struggling with misplaced worship in our hearts, Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has brought the salvation out of Zion. He has made a way for restoration. Jesus is the salvation coming from Zion. This is the good news. It is Jesus who restores the fortune of his people. It is Jesus who causes us to rejoice and be glad. It's amazing news. Think of the most powerful and exhilarating hero entrance in a movie or book that you have ever seen. Just get that picture in your mind. This is what the psalmist is hoping and longing for. And it is Jesus who is the hero of that story. See, we are not the heroes of our story we are not the ones who can make things right. We can't make the world right. We can't even make ourselves right. We can't even make ourselves worship God. We are the ones that need to be saved by the hero. We are the nameless villagers right? So many hero stories have the blundering, hapless, nameless people who are unaware that aliens are about to destroy the whole world until the final fight scene, usually in New York, right? Then during that scene, are these hapless people helpful? No. They just run around screaming and getting in the way, right? That's what they do. They usually do things that require more effort on the part of the hero to save them both from the general destruction and just on an individual level, they end up in really bad places. But it is at the beginning of this final scene, when the nameless people are most vulnerable, when all seems lost, that's when the hero enters the story. Picture that scene, whatever your favorite one is. There's some reveal, some dramatic entrance right a door is kicked open the hero falls out of the sky with lightning and hammers a car screeches to a halt a horse jumps the fence of john wanger guy right the hero has arrived now while jesus's entrance on earth may be less dramatic and his entrance to the final fight scene less promising maybe as he carries the instruments of his own torture and death, while beaten and broken, the result is so much better. It's better. With that cross and with his death, Jesus paid the price for our rebellion. With his resurrection, he defeated death. The victory Jesus won is final. You see, unlike unlike the heroes we write for ourselves, Jesus' victory doesn't leave open the possibility of a sequel with more bad guys. The fight is done. It is finished. Jesus is the victor. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus has chosen to share his reward of hero, of victory with you and me. See, in the stories, after the hero is victorious, what is usually left? A destroyed city. All the buildings are crushed. The houses are destroyed. The setting that the last fight scene took place in is is chaos. While the bad guys in that story are defeated, that nameless person is still worse off than when the bad guys show, than before the bad guys showed up. They don't have a house, they don't have a city, whatever, fill in the blank. Jesus subverts this. His victory does not mean a lesser bad thing than if he hadn't been victorious. His victory means victory even for the nameless. Hope for the hapless villagers. Joy for the broken populace restoration for the distraught, and renewal for the world. He actually makes it better than it was before. Yes, we can look around like the psalmist and say, there is no one who does good. Yes, maybe even more discouraging and disheartening, we can look at ourselves and affirm loudly, there is no one who does good, not even one, not even me but Jesus enters the story. Jesus changes everything. Jesus restores. Jesus makes our dead hearts alive and displaces our misplaced worship with a desire for ourselves for himself. Because of Jesus, I am capable of worshiping him. You're capable of worshiping him. Together we are capable of worshiping Him. He becomes the primary focus of our worship. It is Him we not only seek, but in Him we find meaning and purpose and fulfillment. In Jesus, all those real important questions we have asked are either answered or they just become irrelevant. Jesus will always satisfy. No matter the hurt, no matter the longing, no matter the need, Jesus is the answer. He will satisfy it. No matter how distant from Jesus that longing seems, if we take it to Jesus, lay it in front of him and say, Jesus, deal with this, and we trust Him. He will show us either how He truly satisfies that longing or satisfies what we're actually longing for underneath the thing that we think we're longing for. Something that is better than what we could possibly... Can't do without, when we offer Him our utmost dedication, surrendering to Him and everything we have, that's when we will know true satisfaction. True. Jesus is the only one who can do that because we were designed to never be satisfied by anything else. We can't do this. We can't worship and desire Jesus in this way on our own. We need a new heart. We need the presence of the Holy Spirit enlivening our new heart. So what about those checklist things? What about daily devotionals? church-gathering attendance, other moral and religious activities. Do I need to do those things to earn God's approval? Friend, no. Those things don't earn God's approval. They flow from God's approval. They flow out of what Jesus causes us to desire. We read his word because we desire to know him more. We share Jesus with our neighbors because we just won't shut up about Jesus. But what if we don't? What if we don't want to read the Bible? What if we aren't overflowing with joy at what Jesus has done for us? Yes. Yes. Now you get it. Now we get it. We take that to Jesus. Take that lack of desire. Take that lack of joy. Take that to Jesus and confess it. Confess and repent and ask for him to change our hearts. This is what we do. That is the only thing we do. And this is what the psalmist is leading us to. This psalm shows that we naturally worship anything but God. But Jesus rescues us and restores our relationship with the Father. We started with being confronted by our universal defiance and rejection of God, which plunges us into rebellion and misplaced worship. The ramifications of this misplaced worship is that we become stuck in rebellion and that we cannot get free, and that leads to brokenness. But this is where Jesus enters as the hero. Jesus came into the world, lived a perfect life in our place, died in our place, taking on himself the punishment of our rebellion and rose again, defeating death and ascended into heaven, inviting us into his reward that we do not deserve. He gives us a new heart. One that can desire him. One that can worship him. Join me in asking Jesus to change our hearts to desire him. This is exactly why Jesus died and rose again to answer that prayer. Let's pray. Lord. Thank you for the wonderfully good thing. It is to gather together with your people on a morning like this and worship you. It brings us great joy to worship you, Lord. You are the ultimate source of everything our souls desire. Approaching you is where we find pleasures forevermore. Please empower us through the Holy Spirit to worship you now so that we can forget about the endless daily stresses and experience the fullness of life, refreshment, comfort, blessing, and rest found in you. Give us a deep understanding of your goodness so that as we understand your holiness, we won't be overwhelmed by it. Help us know and experience Jesus more so that we won't be terrified, but rather drawn closer to you with a loving and bold heart. He is our mediator, brother, interpreter, and hero. We glorify him, and in him we share his reward. Lord, this morning we don't have anything to offer to you, and you don't need anything from us, but what you have given us, our time, our talents, and our treasure, we give it back to you. We know that The less we hold tightly to the things you have given us, the less we look for those things to satisfy us, the more we will enjoy the things that you have given us. Help us to live fully dedicated to Jesus, free from distractions, worries, and anything that hinders us from following him. We are forgiven through the blood of Jesus, so grant us fresh understanding of this forgiveness and to constantly live as those who are forgiven draw us closer to you. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, give us hearts that desire Jesus more, hearts that find their complete satisfaction in Jesus. For in his name alone we hope and pray, amen.